Like I said before, our text is from Colossians chapter 2, starts with verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom all hidden, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This morning, uh, it's just a reminder of the, the setting of Colossae. It's a, it's, a, it's a small city, and it's one that Paul has not been to face to face, but he has heard reports. Um, he's heard reports that there are false teachings going on, but that the church is so far remaining steadfast in, in this concept of Christ alone. And so he's writing to encourage them to remain that way, to not give in, to not be persuaded by these seemingly plausible arguments. He calls us this great struggle. And there's false teaching going on all over the place throughout the New Testament. Paul is constantly correcting churches with his letters. Galatians, there were people who, who were putting together a combination of grace and legalism together. And today, false teachers continue to offer plausible arguments, things that sound like they could make sense, sound like that could be right. We see this in, in media, in blogs, and podcasts, and television, movies, everything that we turn on. We have somebody telling us what to think, what to believe, what to feel, how to respond, right? Politicians, preachers, and peddlers are some of the most pervasive and, and persuasive people that we could meet. I can listen to an argument or a sales pitch from one person and say that, boy, that does sound like that makes a lot of sense, and then listen to somebody on the completely other side of the coin argue something entirely different and have that make sense. Right? Competitive debate or, or rhetoric is based on persuasion, the forceful, charismatic use of words and appearance to move people towards an action or a thought. Truth and objectivity go out the window. Facts become tools that can be modified, exaggerated, obscured, or concealed. And the goal is to capture the affections, the emotions, and the mind of the audience. Paul describes in Colossians chapter 2 uh, four harmful effects of these plausible arguments. Delusion, captivity, judgment, and disqualification. For the purpose of today, we're just going to focus on that first one, delusion. Now, this Greek word Paul uses uh, to mean misreckon, miscount. So literally, uh, imagine a manager who's in charge of managing a huge warehouse, and he needs to take inventory of that warehouse. But the manager is either lazy or ignorant or possibly criminal, and so he miscounts the number of items in the warehouse and then reports to the owner the wrong number, but plausibly, charismatically, convinces the owner that he is correct. Imagine a religious leader responsible for, for teaching and, and warning his church about their relationship with God, their relationship with others. Sometimes preachers can be lazy or ignorant or greedy for power and misrepresent the truth of God. See, it's incredibly important that you don't take my word for it. 
please never get into that place. Constantly measure what you hear with Scripture. Don't let me persuade you. Don't let people you hear persuade you. Let the Word of God be so pervasive in your life that you can use that constantly to measure what somebody says as being right or wrong. And if it's anything other than Christ crucified, it's wrong. You see, just hearing the Word of God without acting upon it, without taking it in and truly receiving and accepting it as essential will cause you to be more susceptible to mistruths, making you a deluder of yourself. See, we can be led astray by plausible arguments and seek answers in addition to Jesus or apart from him. Some plausible arguments that, that I've, I've heard people say is that, that they prefer this blending and mixing of ideas, kind of a, a buffet approach to God, pulling from this religion these aspects that you really appreciate and pulling from this religion these aspects of life that you, you enjoy and you, you just have this kind of pan-theology of what makes sense to you. Or I've heard people say that religion is, is so destructive, it's been so divisive with hatred and, and intolerance and violence and should be eliminated. I've heard people say that in order to truly be committed to Christ, you have to have this, this singular moment where you can point to where he has radically transformed who you are. And there are some people who believe that there's this passive God up there. Of course he's there and he's almighty, but he's got bigger things to do than worry about someone like me. Or maybe Jesus is just a component, an aspect, a facet of your life on a Sunday, but you live your own life in your own terms, with your own goals. Now, whatever of these false teachings, of these plausible arguments one may attach themselves to, it has two results. Number one, it, it results in a broken or damaged or missing relationship with God, the true God. And number two, it damages the relationships of those around you. We miss out on face-to-face -face relationships. See, face-to-face -face relationships is what we've been created for. And, and we hear the struggle in Paul's voice and saying, I know I don't have a face-to-face -face relationship with you, and that pains me. But I've heard amazing things, and I am with you in spirit. And I want you to be knitted together. I want you to have these face-to-face -face relationships. But that's what sin has destroyed. Sin gets in the, in the middle of relationships and tarnishes and breaks and dements relationships. This is what sin destroyed, and now we feel this, this necessity to hide who we really are. And maybe you come to church and you use that four-letter F word and people ask you how you're doing and you say, fine. But who are you? How are you? Do you feel safe to just be yourself in a face-to-face, -face, intimate, transparent relationship? And here's the wisdom and knowledge of Christ that serves to be our source of truth, right, of what is right and what is wrong that Christ is our source. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we read scripture, it's, it's not just another book. It's not just a book with really wise things to say that we add to our library of cool books that we've read. 
is something that should be considered what's called the rule and norm. A rule and norm is what, what you use to measure what is right and what is wrong. Like a ruler, if your ruler is bent or not straight, it's no good. But a ruler that has a straight edge, that's what you use to determine what is straight, what is level, what is flat. So the word is what we use and nothing else. Now Paul says two, two pieces to this, two things that are necessary in order to reach out and receive the riches of Christ. Two things, and, and they're both passive, which means that we are not the ones who do them. It is the Holy Spirit who does them in our lives. The first one is be encouraged. God wants our hearts to be encouraged. Hearts is such a great, great concept to think about. It's a part of our, our new mission statement that we are, we're, we're awakening hearts of every generation to the power of life in Christ. Hearts are, are not just our, our, our emotions, but our, the very core of our being from which our thoughts, our feelings all kind of come out of. These hearts, God wants your heart to be encouraged. Because if the heart is encouraged, then the whole being is encouraged. And an encouraged heart can endure suffering. Remember that we can rejoice in that suffering because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character gives us hope that will never fail. Encouraged. This word for encouraged means this concept of cheering on, coaching, giving instruction, reassurance. Whenever I hear that kind of concept, I can't help but think about Hebrews 12, where Paul talks about the, the, the great cloud of witnesses that surround us, that encourage us, that drive us on. I define encouragement just by breaking out two words, the end and the courage. To encourage someone means that you put courage into them. In this context, God puts courage into you. Why do you need courage? Because life is hard. And there are moments where we don't know where to go, where to turn, or what to do. And sometimes we can get into the fight or flight mode. Or deer in the headlights. And so God knows that life is hard, and so he wants to encourage, he wants to put courage into our hearts. To move us from a place of fear into a place of victory where we take steps forward with confidence in him. In this text, Paul desires the hearts of his readers to be given courage to move through false teaching, to be able to reach the riches of Christ's full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, who is Christ. To be encouraged in the heart or have a heart that's encouraged is a way of referring to an encouragement that, that, that touches the deepest part of our being and affects every aspect of who we are. So be encouraged, have our hearts encouraged. That's the first one. The second one is being knitted together in love. My mother and my grandmother, they, they loved to knit. They, they, they knitted, they crocheted, they made things. My grandma made things for me. It was kind of funny. Every year for Christmas, I knew my grandmother would knit me a pair of slippers. And apparently my grandmother didn't know that my feet stopped growing when I was in high school because the slippers started getting like bigger and bigger and bigger. So one day I figured, well, I think I know what I'm going to do, and so I put, on, I put on the pair that fit, and then I put on next year's pair over top of that, and next year's pair over the top of that, and, that, and like I've got these big clown shoes, but my feet were so toasty warm. 
but I could never knit. I, I, I lose count. My, my mind doesn't focus on how many stitches and how many loops. And how, I, 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 uh. But I was walking in, the, in, in Home Depot the other day, and I'm getting ready to start a, a wood project at home, and, and uh, I was at the fastener section, and that makes sense to me, right? I understand lag screws and bolts and nuts and, and, and wood screws and deck screws, and, and, uh, and then you know, come, the mind kind of stretches from there to welding and fusing and, and just this, this being knit together, being fastened together with one another is so critical to the Christian experience. We are not meant to be alone. We are to be knitted together in love. In order to, be, to keep from being deceived from plausible arguments, it's important to be infused with the wisdom of God, to know what his word says, and to be knitted together with other believers. Strong relationships with other believers. And as such, face-to-face -face is so much more important. Face-to-face -face is so critical. And I want, to, I want to speak to you who are, who are home and streaming, and if, if that is your only option, then I'm so glad you've got that option. But if you have the option to come and be present here, you are robbing us of the joy of seeing you. To be face-to-face, -face, knit together, to be one family is a powerful thing. Now, this face-to-face -face relationship could be your spouse, it could be a friend, it could be, it could be a coworker. And face-to-face -face conversations are so important when dealing with heavy issues. To be present in the same room is powerful. About a year ago, I was going through something really difficult, got some, some difficult news to hear, and, and it, it kind of shook me a little bit, and I was getting ready to, to teach uh, a, a Bible study to our, our uh, vacation Bible school families and kids. And my head wasn't quite in the game, right, because I was thinking about the problem. And uh, I reached out to a good friend here in town and, and, and said, I just, just kind of, I was just looking for some prayer time, right? And, and I was talking to him on the phone and he says, do you have 10 minutes? And I was like, I've got 15 in, before the, the class starts. He's like, I'm on my way. So I was just looking for a phone call conversation. Just pray with me, just encourage me, put courage into me. And he knew face-to-face -face is better. So he probably broke the law speeding and got here and gave me a hug and grabbed my hands and we prayed. See, over the phone, over the internet, it's better than nothing, but it is not the same as face-to-face. -face. You know, the same is true in counseling. If you, if you go through counseling and you, you've got a, a, you know, a, a Zoom conversation with a therapist, that's better than nothing. But it's entirely different to be in the same room face-to-face. Jesus knew that. The Father knew that. See, our God isn't somebody who just zooms to us from above. He knew that face-to-face -face was where relationships are. And so he gave up the glories of heaven to walk in this dust, to look us face-to-face, -face, to give us gifts like the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate next week, where we can be face-to-face -face with the very real presence of Christ to be in the same room with him, to know that he longs to be with us. God, face to face with us through Jesus Christ, this, this richness, this treasure that that brings. 
and with one another, when we have that, we, we desire transparent relationships, things that are so much more than superficial, right? We want to get deeper. We need relationships to take us deeper, forming relationships to experience and share the love of God, building transformative and transparent relationships modeled by, by those around us, to have vulnerability and a willingness to share the best of our lives and the worst of our lives and building strong bonds that are there when we experience difficulty. And it's God who knits us together. Uh, there's a, a guy I like to listen to from time to time. His name is Louis Giglio. And he, he was asked, how can we know that God holds us together? And in this, he, he talks about this, uh, this, this thing in the body that's called lanolin. And it, it, it's a glue that, that holds all of our pieces of our body together. And, and looking under a microscope, you find out this lanolin is in the shape of a cross. That's what it looks like. It looks like a, a little cross. And we're filled with them. We're like our whole body is just filled with lanolin that holds our body together in the shape of a cross. And, and Louis says, that's the proof. That's the proof that you can know that Jesus is the one inside you, knitting you together, holding you all together. And I think Louis had it close because that's not the proof. That's a fingerprint. That's a sign. That's something we can see, but it's not proof because proof is in the word of God. Proof is when God says, I knit you together. That's the proof. And that's what I believe. It's God who does this. So we are encouraged. Courage is put into us. We are knit together so that this may result, so that we might reach the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. The riches of Christ. Jesus is the greatest treasure we could ever hope to find. It is never exhausted. It never runs out. It is always accessible by the word, by the, the sacraments that we receive. And as this treasure, it should be valued above all else in our lives. Wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom, if you remember, is the competence in regard to the complex realities of life. It doesn't come from life experience. It doesn't come from education. It doesn't come from for just being old. It is given to you by God directly to just understand and know. It's more than intellectual knowledge because there's a lot of really foolish, smart people. It's more than just moral obedience. There are many foolish, moral people. We're reminded that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is the acquired skill of looking at the world through the word of God. Wisdom is seeing the world as God sees the world. Through his word. Through the cross. Through the empty tomb. That's wisdom. Now knowledge. Knowledge we talked about last week. It's this deep, personal, intimate, experiential relationship with God. It's more than information learned. It's an experience. Now, treasure always reminds me of a couple of parables, the parable of the pearl of great price and the parable of the treasure in the field, right? And these are typically understood as, as, a, as, a, as a person like you and me just kind of wandering along and we find this great value and seeing this great value, we go and we sell all that we have so that we can purchase it and obtain it. But the, the reality is, is it's flipped. That Jesus is the main character in those parables that on finding you, 
realizes the treasure that you are. And he pays it all. He pays his very life, his body and blood, to obtain you because you are his treasure. And to encounter that kind of love, to know that kind of love, to experience that kind of love as a rich treasure that brings salvation to our souls, a gift beyond measure, a treasure that is beyond imagination. Whenever I think about treasure, I always think about the Nicolas Cage movie, National Treasure. Right? And, and if, for those of you who haven't seen it, there's a spoiler alert, he finds a treasure. But it's this big room and with the light that they have with their torches, they can't see all the underground treasure room. But there's this really cool like system of gunpowder where they touch the torches too and this fire just kind of weaves all the way through and it keeps going and going and going and going and it's treasure as far as the eye can see. If we were to line our lives up in that same light, and we touch those lights and we see we would just see sin after sin after sin after sin after sin. That's who we are, broken sinners. We would see every mistake, and in light of that, it would just be crushing guilt and shame. And yet Jesus, out of his grace, out of his treasure, he covers over all our sin. He washes it away as if it never happened. And instead, he takes us by the hand and he presents us to the Heavenly Father, pure and blameless, because we have his righteousness wrapped around us. And he ushers us into the treasure room, the throne room of God. And there in the throne room of God, we will see you and you and you and you and all the people of all history who have passed from this world into the next in faith treasure room of God filled with all of us. Be encouraged. Be knit together. Reach for that treasure. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we praise you so very much for the treasure that you so graciously and generously pour out into our lives through your Son. Father, we pray for your wisdom, for knowledge, that we'd be able to defend ourselves from from plausible arguments that may come from surprising sources. Fill us with the courage, fill us with your courage to move through wrongful teachings and pursue the truth that exists in your word and your word alone. Father, we pray this in Jesus' powerful and holy name. Amen.